right together. But Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It is like you, O Lord, to magnify the glory of your name and to triumph over your enemies through the weakest of childlike instruments. And, Lord, your word says we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So, O God, grant that we may behold that glory and receive that grace that Heritage Baptist Church would taste and see that your word is more precious than gold even much fine gold and is sweeter than honey and the drippings from the honeycomb. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, they say, it's been said, that preaching, preaching occurs when a preacher not only explains a text, but he applies it to the heart. Um, a sermon's not been preached. It's not finished unless the text has not only been explained, but pressed home to the heart. And this is a difficult text in many ways. Um, it's not a text that a person would probably choose to preach from. But it's a text that after having spent much time in, I have found to be immensely helpful to myself. Which just goes to show you how rich the Word of God is. Every page, every paragraph of, of, of Scripture is dripping with help for us. And so, would you pray with me, even as you sit there in the pew this morning, um, would you pray with me throughout this sermon, as you're listening, that God would work this text uh, into our hearts as a body? So let's jump right in. I don't want to spend any time... Um, in any other introduction, I just want to get right into the passage. Verse 12 is where we pick it up. Um, now, in order to understand this passage, it's difficult when we read it. Jason read it. He a very good reading. But still, you can sense that as you read it, that there's a lot here, and it's not, it's not readily uh, understandable. And so, in order to understand this passage, I think that what you need to see initially is a is a critical link between two verses and those two verses are verses 12 and 19 this is you can kind of view this as bible study time for a few minutes verses 12 and 19 so take your bibles and let's work together let's read these verses first verse 12 brothers i entreat you become as i am for I also have become as you are. Now verse 19. By the way, there should be a period at the end of verse 18. Uh, that would be a better way to, to, uh, to, to, to render that. So verse 19. My little children, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. All right, here's what you need to see. Uh, look, look at verse 19. Stay looking there. Paul describes his whole ministry to the Galatians by using a metaphor 
of a mother giving birth to a child. And we're going to come back to that metaphor in a second. But for now, just notice the language, mother, child, pregnancy language. All right. Now, verse 12, back to verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. And what you need to see here in this phrase is that Paul says, and what we need to understand is what Paul means by the phrase, I beg you, I entreat you to become as I am. What is he saying? Well, I think understanding what he's saying here is in some senses the key that unlocks this whole passage. So let me explain. First, if Paul says, if he said here, become like me, obviously that means that the Galatians are lacking something. They need, to, they need to become something that they're not. What is that? Well, let's just drop back a few verses and grab the context. Look at verse 9. Uh, let's grab the context. And Paul says in verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, and I love this phrase, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves... You want to be once more. So Paul is talking about slavery and bondage. That's the context here. In other words, the Galatians are not living in the freedom of the gospel. That's what's happening. They are in the process of going back into a slavery and adopting the Old Testament Mosaic law with all of its special days and months and seasons. Verse 11 10 and 11, in order to earn favor with God. So what they're lacking then is freedom. Freedom is what they're missing, or the liberty that the gospel produces. So when Paul says, become like me, what he is saying is, I beg you to become like me and understand the freedom that is yours in Christ. Be free like me. That's what Paul has that the Galatians do not. Liberty and freedom. At least that's what, they, that's what they're lacking in its expression as they live daily. They may have freedom. They may be saved, but they're not expressing it. That's the problem. Paul understands his freedom in Christ, but the Galatians do not. All right, so that's verse 12. Now, let's put, let's put these two verses together, 12 and 19, and let's see this critical link that I made reference to. Look again at verse 19. Paul says, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Notice the word again and the word until. Until what? Well, until Christ is formed in you. So clearly, Paul's point is that Christ has not been fully formed in them. That's the point. He's not been fully formed, and he will remain in labor until Christ is formed in them. So something is lacking. Something is keeping them from having Christ formed in them. And we saw from verse 12 that what's lacking is that the Galatians are not operating in the freedom and liberty that the gospel is meant to produce in their lives. They're in the process of trading their freedom for slavery. They're in the process of moving from grace back to works. They're trying to go from they're trying to go from sonship to slavery. 
They don't seem to understand the truth of Galatians 5.1, that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That Christ has set us free for the purpose of freedom. That it is for the sake of freedom that Christ has set us free. And until they get this, guess what? Back to the womb, back to the uterus, back to the pain of childbirth because Christ is not formed in them. That's the major point. And Paul's whole ministry to the Galatians is likened to a mother undergoing the pain of childbirth. Now, I'm moved, I'm both moved and frightened by this metaphor. <laughs> I, I am, because, I mean, this, as a pastor, I'm moved by this because, think of it, a mother in delivery undergoing sharp labor pains. And Paul is pushing to get that baby out. And the baby that is, the baby that he's referring to is Christ or the formation of Christ in them. And Paul had done all that labor back on his first missionary journey. That labor was supposed to be finished. And the baby had emerged, there it was, and now Paul's writing and saying, I am again in labor pains because Christ is not formed in you yet. You're not the whole child you ought to be because you're not operating in the freedom of the gospel that's the point of the passage. It, it, what he's saying is you're not the whole child. You're deformed. You're a deformed child. And that's the point. And here's why it matters for us. This is my thesis. Um, listen carefully. This is, why, this is why it matters. This is really crucial for us as a body. Here's the thesis. Christian maturity is characterized... By the formation of Christ in us. Verse 19. Christian maturity is when the embryo that is Christ comes to full term. So Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul says this. And Paul can say it because it's happened. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christian maturity is is when that life of Christ in me comes to full term and takes shape in my life. And the evidence that this has happened is not simply that we have believed the gospel, but that we are living in the freedom of it. It's when the message of the gospel is not just something that shapes your belief, but something that shapes your life. And anything short of that reveals that there is a malformation of Christ and indicates either serious immaturity or a lack of faith altogether. Friends, that's the message of this passage. That, the, the rest is application or teasing out of that idea, but that's the main point. And if you get that, you can be really helped by this word. For example... Some of us um, may not be clear on what it is that keeps us in good standing with God. While it's true that God is pleased when we obey him, 
Our ongoing righteous standing with God is not based on our obedience, but Christ's. Listen, God has a saving disposition toward you, not because you're obedient as a Christian, not because you love his law and please him, not because you love church and honor the Lord's day, though those are good things. You have God's righteous, justifying, saving favor because Christ died for you, period. And you do not keep God's righteous favor or maintain God's saving favor because you work hard at pleasing God, though working hard to please God is good. Listen, you keep and maintain your justified standing before God Because the death of Christ was complete 2,000 years ago and still covers you today. So that when Jesus is on the cross and he says, Tetelestai, it is finished. He is saying, this action is completed now and it has present abiding effects in 2011. It's all grace. We started with grace. We continue with grace, and we will finish with grace. It all comes back to the gospel. See, the the, the thing is, after a while, Galatians starts to get a bit repetitive, and you start thinking, man, every Sunday, they are just banging that drum every week, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And he gets to the point where he starts saying, like, is this a little unbalanced here? So much, just all the time, it just keeps coming back to the gospel. But friends, I'm just preaching what's in the text. This is not my idea. The gospel is the only message that gives life. But listen, it's the only message that sustains life and nourishes it. I was thinking about this analogy this week. It's not the baby formula that you drink to bring you out of infancy. It's the meat that you eat to lead you throughout your life. It it produces freedom, the gospel, and it forms us into the image of Christ. That's what you have to see in this passage is the formative power of the gospel, that you're not going to be formed into the image of Christ unless you dwell on the gospel, unless you're a gospel dweller. That's what has to happen. So, So that if we lose this message as a church, we lose everything. So churches that do not center themselves on the gospel will eventually lose the gospel, and that's exactly what the Galatians did. They lost the gospel. Look, the reason why they lacked freedom and the reason why they were tempted to turn back to the law and the reason why Paul had to labor spiritually over them was because they did not keep their eyes firmly fixed on the gospel. That was the problem. They were beginning to replace the gospel as their operational center in favor of a new center, a new ethic, a new motivation. In fact, Paul is so concerned in this passage that he practically leaves behind all his reasoned argumentation, all his hardline theology. He leaves it all behind, and he simply pleads with them to turn back. That's what he's doing. He's emotionally pleading with him. His heart is wrenched. Martin Luther said, these words breathe Paul's own tears. He appears to be emotionally spent and exhausted as he piles one passionate plea upon another to remain loyal to the gospel. 
This is Paul the pastor, and it's his argument from the heart. It's his argument from relationship, as Brandon said. He pleads with them on the basis of his deep relationship, like a parent who's given all the strong arguments he or she can. Maybe you've done this with your kids. You give them all the strong reason arguments you can, and the kid still, the child still does not listen. And finally, you just break down and you just plead with them from a loving heart. And, and, and that's what Paul's doing here. And as one of your pastors, I plead with you, I plead with us that we never lose sight of the gospel. If, if, if we actually, if it was possible for us to, to if, if you think that maybe we won't lose the gospel or that it's not possible for that to happen, then why do you think it happened to the Galatians? This is a Christian church. This is a church that rooted themselves in the gospel, but they veered away. So it is possible for us. God help us. Well, now that we've explained the heart of this text, what I want to do is I want to spend the rest of our time tracing out the implications of it for our church. So here's what I want to do. I want to pull away from the individual level of this passage, and I want to move it into the corporate, um, its corporate uh, import for our church. What does it mean for us as a church? What are the corporate, corporate implications um, we need to grow as a church. That's that's obvious. It's probably uh, a massive overstatement, uh, understatement. I I've been praying all week that God would do a would do a transforming work in us through this passage, and a, a lot of stuff already that's important has been said. But there's so much more here, and what I want you to see, I want to tease out some characteristics, some qualities, or some defining marks. All from this text, you'll see it, it all emerges from here, that should distinguish us as a church. And as we seek to be transformed by the gospel, uh, we should expect to be shaped or marked by the following things. I have six of them, and I'm going to move through them quickly. Six of them. But I want you to think about us, I want you to think about our church as we consider these together. Uh, If you want to, you can think of them as prayer requests. For our church, six characteristics of a community that is centered on the gospel. All right, here we go. Number one, first, a community centered on the gospel is free. Verse 12, brothers, I entreat you become as I am. Now, since we've already spent some time on this point, I just want to briefly bend the nail over and and just drive it in. The gospel produces freedom. That's what it does. The gospel produces freedom. God sent his son Jesus to make people free. That's why Jesus came. In fact, when given the opportunity to preach in the synagogue, Jesus opens the scroll to Isaiah and he says, I have come to set the captives free that's what that's what he's come to do he's come to set you free and he's come to set me free and he's come to set us free and the and gospel-centered churches understand that and here's the key they live under the power of that in fact one of the primary things that motivated uh, this series on Galatians was a desire for our church to further understand 
the freedom that we have in Christ. See, the gospel not only sets non-Christians free from the penalty of sin, the gospel sets Christians free from the power of it. The gospel is, is the only power that can liberate Christians struggling with sins, all types of sins. It's the only power that can free a brother from the clutches of money and lust and pride. And it's the only power that can liberate a sister from the sin of trying to work for God's righteous, justifying favor when she already has it in Christ. So it's for both irreligious people and religious people. It's for Christians who need to constantly be recalibrated. And part of what it means for us then to be a mature church is that we understand justification. We understand how we became Christians. Martin Luther, the great reformer, had a point when he said, It's not imitation that makes us sons. It's sonship that makes us imitators. And to get this backwards is to miss the gospel. Because what Luther means here is that on the one hand, either people try to obey God to get his saving favor, or they obey God because they know deep down that they already have it. Let me say that again. Luther, what he means is that either people try to obey God to gain his saving favor, or they obey God because they know deep down that they already have it in Christ. And there's a world of difference between those two. One of them is life-giving. The other one is soul-destroying. And somehow the Galatians got it twisted up and confused. And, and what did it do? It led them right back into slavery. So we should take heed. So a gospel-centered community is free, and it understands it. Secondly, a community centered on the gospel is adapting Verse 12, the gospel makes churches flexible. It makes churches adaptable. Heritage Baptist Church should be an adapting church. Verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have become as you are. That's a strange statement. You would expect Paul to say, I entreat you to become as I am because I am like Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Uh, th- this is not what Paul says. Paul says, I entreat you to become as, as I am because I am as you are. See, for Paul, it is the most uncanny irony that Paul became a Greek. When he was a Jew, he became a Greek for them in order to win the Greeks or the Galatians or the Gentiles. He became one of them, and now they're starting to become Jews. Think about the irony. That's what he did. He, he became one of them to win them to Christ, and now they're turning away into, into Judaism. See, you have to remember that this letter was written by a Jewish man, a kosher man, a man who was trained to obey the Mosaic law, just like Peter. The only difference is Peter had come to the conclusion that it was not lawful for the Jews to eat with Gentiles. And Paul is eating it up 
with the Gentiles. And he's spending time with the Gentiles. And that's how they came to know the gospel in the first place. In other words, the gospel, the gospel freed Paul from those Jewish food laws and from those clean laws so that he could adapt himself to a different culture for the sake of the gospel. Because Paul had been freed from the law, he was able to get into the lives of those who were not under it and eat with them and love them into the kingdom. And there's a principle in this for us as a church. And it's this, you and I have freedom in the gospel. There is no unclean person. There is no unclean race. There is no unclean place where we cannot take and minister the gospel. Just think about that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, one of the most formative passages on this topic. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. Remember, he died to the law. That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but listen to this, this is critical, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Now, brothers and sisters, this is crucial for us to get this. You have freedom and liberty to be with anyone as you minister the gospel. You can spend time with gays and prostitutes and drug users and criminal offenders and call them all to repent and believe. Not only can you, but you should. And we have a lot of work to do here. Because I don't see too many sinners here or with us or close to us. I see too few, my life included. And it makes me wonder, it makes me wonder how much we understand the gospel or how aware we are of our own sin and the freeness of God's extravagant mercy on us. See, if God has gone to great lengths to rescue us, then should we not image God and go to great lengths to rescue others? What is it about the gospel that we are not understanding? What is it about our current life and structure and living under the gospel that is not compelling us or propelling us into the hard places to reach hard people for Jesus? I I just don't think it's just fear. I'm just afraid. I don't think it's just I, I don't have time or I'm not making time. I'm asking a question, what is it about the gospel that hasn't permeated in our hearts and souls deep enough to where it just has to happen? You get to a place where you just get so uncomfortable in your own skin as a Christian unless you're able to just explain the gospel to somebody. Where you're just going to pop unless you tell somebody about Jesus. 
where you're going to pop unless you just build a relationship with your neighbors across the street. You get to a place where you say, it is wrong for me to live next to this guy and not have a relationship with him over the gospel. I've lived next to him for 10 years, and I've had one or two gospel conversations with him. Well, then don't start with the gospel. Just go over there and be his friend. Hang out with him. Spend time. Barbecue. Grill out. Get to know him. Develop a long-term relationship with him. And slowly but surely invite him to Jesus Christ. Get involved. And, and I'm speaking to myself. I'm preaching. People of God, I want you to know this is not me being hard on you. This is me being hard on me. <laughs> I was telling my wife this on, in, in, in the car yesterday. Is that I, I feel convicted. I feel challenged by this. This text has worked me over. We're just in one phrase of verse 12. And that's where Paul says, become like me because I became like you. Are you becoming like anybody? Are you just happy to be yourself? Are you working to become like anybody for the sake of the gospel? This is, is this just an example But Paul? Good example, but we don't have to be like that. No, Paul is, Paul is, is saying, be like me because I became like you. So Paul is pressing us here on this point. And, and, but remember this, that the gospel, when, when Paul became all things to all men, he did it under the law of Christ, the law of love. So if the community you're trying to reach, uh, for example, is using degrading languages or they're using or they're, they're involved in, in some kind of immorality that is um, degrading, does that mean that to be contextual and to have gospel freedom, you too should engage in vulgar language? No, of course not. The law of Christ says, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So listen, as we contextualize, we never need to do anything unchristlike in order to win people to Christ. That's foolish. But with that said, there is a fluid freedom that we have to interact with anyone for the sake of the gospel. John Stott says, in seeking to win, listen to this quote, John, in seeking to win other people for Christ, our end is to make them like us, but the means to that end is to make us like them. If they are to become one with us in Christian conviction and experience, we must first become one with them in Christian compassion. Friends, gospel-centered churches are churches that not only understand their freedom in Christ, but they're churches that minister in the freedom of Christ. And so we are free to have ongoing, deepening, developing relationships with sinners, both self-righteous sinners and reckless sinners alike. We are free to adapt, to change the way we dress, to change the things that we eat even if we don't like it, to minister the gospel. The gospel has given us freedom. It, it, it gives us a fluid nature so that we can, for the sake of evangelism and mission, that we can, we can engage people from different cultures and classes for the sake of Christ. So that's number two. Three, a community centered on the gospel is 
sacrificial. Verse 13. Sacrificial. Paul says, you know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel. That word angelos means messenger. You received me as a messenger of God as Christ Jesus. You received me as Christ Jesus himself. What then has become of the blessing you felt? Or happiness. For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. All right, what's going on here? Paul is sick. Paul's real sick. Um, we don't know what kind of sickness he had, um, but we know that he's sick. He has a bodily ailment. What the Greek text says is weakness of body. He's experiencing some form of weakness of body. And he understood that being a servant of God did not somehow make him immune from physical weakness. I mean, it's just how many times does the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel just fall on its face? It's just over and over and over again. So we won't labor that point, but, the, but clearly Paul is sick. In fact, it was because of a physical condition that Paul was given an opportunity to preach to the Galatians to begin with. Look at verse 13. And one of the things I think we learn from this, just as application, is that God loves to use adversities of life, sickness, persecution, poverty, natural disasters, Alabama, tornadoes, and inexplicable tragedies as occasions to display his mercy and grace and as a means to advance his gospel. We, we don't always know what, what, what God is doing. And Paul's sick here. Some have speculated that it's malaria. Others have thought that it's uh, an eye disease called uh, ophthalmitis. Others, others think that possibly this is just Paul using uh, hyperbole when he says, look, the Galatians said we would have plucked out our own eyes for you. And they're saying we would have just done anything for you. The point is, though, Paul is sick. He has some physical ailment. But whatever the case may be, one thing is clear. Paul made great sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. I I could just see Paul there preaching to the Galatians, and he's bending over in sickness, but he's still trying to preach the cross. And, And you know what? Paul might also be weak or in the body or sick because he endured great persecution. He was stoned. He was he was he was mistreated. He was abused. So Paul might have come to them right after having just been absolutely just lambasted for the sake of the gospel. And he stands in front of them in weakness of body, and it's all that he has to just give them Jesus. And what do they do? They receive him. They receive him as a messenger of God, as an angel, or as Christ himself, as a representative of Christ. And notice, not only was Paul sacrificing, but the Galatians are ready to give their own eyes. Verse 15. So we see a mutual love and sacrifice. And that's that's the point here. Gospel-centered communities show a willingness to suffer, and they endure great hardship together. And they love one another in the midst of that. Four. Number four. 
A community centered on the gospel is under authority. Verse 14. Verse 14. Paul says, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God. As a true teacher, Paul was a messenger. He was a representative of Christ. He's not representing himself. He's not representing the apostolic band of brothers. He's representing Christ. And all true pastors and teachers have this representative function. We don't speak on our own authority. That's why when we preach sermons, we preach the Bible. We communicate God's word to God's people. Too many churches have such misaligned expectations for their pastors. There's so many ideas about what the perfect pastor is. And and sadly, so much of it includes everything but faithfulness to God's word. Isn't that amazing? You know, is a guy a businessman? Does he have lots of money? Is he a leader? Is he influential? What about faithfulness to God's word? I mean, it's amazing what people's expectations are. Some of them are just hilarious. Phil Riken uh, describes the world's idea of a perfect pastor with this parody that I thought was quite clever. The perfect pastor is a man who condemns sin but never upsets anyone. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight, and he's also the janitor. He makes 60 bucks a week, and he gives about 30 to the poor. He's 28 years old, and he's been preaching for 30 years. The perfect pastor smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his work. He spends all his time evangelizing the unchurched and is always in his office when needed. (laughs) Well, that's funny, but, but sadly, in our culture, pastors and churches are evaluated by all the wrong criteria. Pastors should not be evaluated primarily on the basis of their abilities, their appearance, their personalities, or popularity. Pastors should be evaluated primarily on, the ba- on, the faith- on their faithfulness to God's word on that basis. That's why we love to preach here at this church paragraph by paragraph through scripture. Uh, we just want to communicate what God has said and nothing more because we are under authority. And we love to proclaim his word. And, and, and you, people of God, you represent God when you speak his word to others. So as a church, that means we are a proclaiming people. We're a truth-telling people. We're a people who loves to announce the gospel and the coming of Jesus Christ. We love that. That means as a gospel-centered community, we are under authority and, and as we are under authority, we will be word-driven people who gladly take the king's message to the world around us. So that's number four. We are under authority. Number five, a community centered on the gospel is happy. Verse 15, it's happy. In verses 12 through 14, Paul's been describing this incredible relationship between he and the Galatians. Um, It's clear that it was marked by mutual love and care. I mean, I'll I'll gouge out my own eyes for you. Paul's sacrificing to to share the gospel with them. They heard Paul preach with joy. They received him gladly. They listened to him with much anticipation. But in verse 15, we have this sudden change. 
strange. It's jolting to you as you read the passage. The joy and the satisfaction they used to feel is gone. So Paul says, what then has become of the blessing you felt? That word um, is only used one other place in the New Testament. It can be translated happiness. What, what became of the blessing you felt? You felt? And the, the only other place it occurs is in Romans. Paul uses it himself, Romans 4, where you, you know the passage where Paul quotes Psalm 32. And he says, Bless, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed or happy is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. I find it interesting that that noun form um, in the Greek, it's only used in one place. And I find it interesting that he, he pulls that word and he uses it here. And he says, what became of the happiness you felt, of the blessing you felt? It's the blessing that comes from justification by faith alone. It's a status. It's first a status, and then it's a feeling. And listen carefully. It's first a status. It's a declaration. Blessed. Blessed is the man. That's his condition. It's God's pronouncement to us that we are in a blessed state. And when we understand that declaration, guess what? We feel something. It doesn't stay just in a state. That state and the understanding, the comprehension of knowing that we are justified moves into a feeling. So, and when we understand that, we feel something. And that's why Paul says, what became of the blessing you felt? The announcement that our sins are forgiven leads to a feeling of joy and passion and happiness. (laughs) Plain and simple, the gospel produces happy people. That's what it does. Happy churches that aren't happy are not gospel people. Go look. Find a church that's sour and glib and gloomy, and you'll find a church that is not focused on the gospel. You, you, you find a church that's happy, and I mean not superficially happy, but deeply happy and joyful, they understand the gospel. Because that's what the gospel produces. So what if you're not happy? What if you're not happy? Maybe you're asking that question. I don't feel happy, and I think I'm a gospel person. Well, then perhaps you're becoming like the Galatians, and you're taking your eyes off the gospel. I mean, what else could it be? I know there's circumstantial factors, but deep down, what is it? Let me give you an illustration. There's an old illustration of three men that are walking high on the edge of a building. Faith, facts, and feelings. They're walking on this edge. It's like a tightrope, and faith is in the middle. Facts is in front, and feelings behind. As long as faith keeps his eyes on facts, feelings follows. But when faith turns around and looks to feelings for direction, faith falls off the wall. Lloyd-Jones said, what matters is not what I feel is true about myself at any moment, but what I know is true about God at every moment. That's an exceedingly important statement. But church, since you 
since feelings are not unimportant, let me encourage you to keep your eyes on the facts of the gospel. Keep your eyes fixed on the cross where your Savior died for you and joy and blessing and happiness will soon follow. You want to be a happy Christian? My prescription for you is keep your eyes on facts. The facts, not just facts, but the facts of the gospel. And as you do that, feelings will follow. A community centered on the gospel is happy. Finally, a community centered on the gospel is in spiritual labor is in spiritual labor, verses 16 through 20. Spiritual labor is painful. That's clear from Paul's language in verse 19. And the agony, the anguish of childbirth. But the pain actually starts in verse 16. When he speaks the truth, it starts with speaking the truth in love. Look at 16. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul was telling them the truth so persistently, and they were veering away from that truth so painfully that now Paul is in danger of becoming an enemy to them. Do you see what this means? It means Paul was committed to something more than unity. Paul was committed to something more than fellowship. He was committed to a principle higher than friendship. He was committed to the truth. That's what Paul was committed to. In fact, he was so committed to it that he was willing to become an enemy over it. And so gospel-centered churches are truth-telling people. We speak the truth in love. We clarify the gospel. We protect one another from veering off to the left or to the right into false gospels. Or being led away by false teachers. And that's what's happening here in verse 17. Paul says, these false teachers are flattering and making much of you so that you will flatter and make much of them. That's, that's what's happening in verse 17. They're just praise, praise, praise. Just mutual praise back and forth. Let's praise each other. Let's have a praise fest. I'll praise you. I'll scratch your back. I'll stroke you. I'll make you feel good about yourself, and then you make me feel good about myself. And we'll just we'll just have this nice, happy community of just flattering each other. And it's all man-centered, and it's all selfish. But notice the difference between Paul and the false teachers. That's that's the false teacher seventeen. But Paul speaks the truth in love, and he's becoming an enemy over it. He's not worried about the friendship ultimately. He's worried about the soul, and that's what your pastors are meant to do. Look, your pastors love you so much that they're willing to offend you if they think you're about to fall over the precipice. That's what a loving pastor does. Pastor Paul, Pastor Paul is faithful. Pastor Paul is speaking truth in love. Look, I just find it interesting, these false teachers in verse 17, why they do what they do. I mean, notice that they're flattering, but they ultimately they want to be praised themselves. That's what it says. Their purpose was selfish. It's like, it's like what they're doing is they're trying to create almost clones in their own image. You know, Paul, 
here's Paul on the one hand. He, Paul's trying to form Christ, and these guys are trying to form themselves. They're trying to form people that want to praise them. There's a, there's a key indication of a false ministry. Pastors, leaders that are producing clones, people that, the people that are, are giving them nice attention, that are praising them, that's got false ministry written all over it. But Paul, on the other hand, is forming Christ. These false teachers had an emotional need. They needed people to need them. That's what happened. And how many ministries are like that today? People, pastors who need people to need them. It's just idolatry. It's image idolatry. It's approval idolatry. And for them, for these kind of people, life only has meaning if they can be somebody and maintain a certain image. If they're loved and respected. Does that sound like anybody that you know? Sounds like me. Often. But not Paul. Paul was sincere. Paul had the attitude of a pastor. He said, my little children. Paul had the longing of a pastor to be with them. Paul had the purpose of a pastor that Christ may be formed in them. And Paul had the agony of a pastor painfully laboring to see Christ formed. In fact, so intense was his struggle to rescue them from these false teachers. And so strong was this false teaching that he likens himself to a mother, listen, undergoing labor for a second time for the same child. Now, every mother in here would talk about the pain of childbirth. But can you imagine going through labor twice for the same child? And that's a metaphor. Paul... Paul's language is, is, is it's, it's just so, there's just so much hyperbole almost because he's trying to make his point. It's painful, and he does it, Paul does it, without an emotional or spiritual epidural. There's nothing to alleviate that pain. It's just raw pain, just agony. But to press his point home further, Look what he does. Verse 19, Paul changes metaphors. The Galatians who were described as being formed in the womb are in the second half of that verse being spoken of as being pregnant mothers themselves. Look carefully at the language. Who are waiting for an embryonic Christ to be fully developed in them. In other words, Paul's labors over them are not finished Until Christ takes shape within them. What Paul is forming then with his pregnancy metaphor is not a child of his own likeness. Paul is forming a child of Christ's likeness. And that's what gospel-centered churches and people do for one another. As members of this church, we must be willing to go through labor pains for one another until Christ is formed in us. And you can expect there to be struggle and hurt and pain and misunderstanding and disappointment. But that's our job. 
That's our job. Until the message of the gospel not only shapes the mind of this church, but begins to shape the life of it as well. We labor over one another until the gospel not only takes root here theologically, but the gospel takes root here behaviorally. And as I said, one of the strongest evidences of this will be when we begin to live, not only live in the freedom of the gospel, but minister in the freedom of the gospel. When we rejoice in sonship instead of struggling with slavery. And we're on our way. We are on our way. God is helping us. We are becoming a gospel-focused people. And I'm proud of you. Your pastors are proud of you. We love you. And we're just, we're just helping you and helping us get there. And we want to keep making strides. Oh, that Christ would be formed in us. This is my conclusion. Oh, that Christ would be formed in our church. So formed that the gospel makes us so radically other-centered, so sacrificial and generous, so loving and gracious that Christ would take hold of us in such a way that we stop thinking about ourselves almost altogether and get busy advancing the kingdom of God in this city, that we dream dreams for this place, that we pray and develop strategies for reaching this city, that packing up and moving to Fifth Street is not radical, it's normal. That building long-term relationships with our lost neighbors is a membership expectation. We should expect that. You're going to be an evangelizing, mission-driven people. That we not only give our money to foreign missions because it's easier, but we give our lives to this city and our neighbors because it's harder. What will, take, what will it take then, people of God, for, us to be, for Christ to be formed in us? It will take labor pain. It will require being a gospel-centered community. But if we do that, Christ will be formed in us. And as our eyes gaze at King Jesus, we can say, and we all, with unveiled faces, Reflecting the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, would you take these words, as imperfect as they were, and press them into our hearts and change us from it. In Jesus' name, amen.